going to uh, turn and look at Luke's gospel now. We have uh, been doing a series on Luke uh, from Christmas through to Easter. We're basically going from the birth of Jesus right through to his death and his resurrection, uh, as Luke describes it. And we've come to uh, chapter 9, um, as uh, the events around Caesarea Philippi and the Transfiguration. The idea behind all this is that uh, to try and get you to grips with what Luke's gospel is about so that you could meet up with somebody uh, and read Luke's gospel with them. You could talk about what Luke talks about. Um, Luke is a very historical document, uh, as we've seen in beforehand, um, and it's really good for the, just to set out the, the history behind all that we understand about Jesus, uh, his death, his life, uh, all the, the things that he did, uh, and ultimately his resurrection. Um, I hope in the weeks to come, before Easter, to have a series of uh, Luke's Gospels um, at the back for you to be able to take away with you if you want them, um, to, give the, to give to people, um, to meet up with people to talk about, um, maybe other various books on Luke as well. And those hopefully will be at the back for you as a resource for you to use as we seek to uh, reach out with the good news of Jesus coming up to Easter time. <clears throat> so before we look at this, let's, uh, let's just pray together. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to look upon your word, we do ask that you will open our eyes that we may truly see, that you will open our ears that we may really hear what you have to say to us, and that you will open our hearts that we might receive that message, that we might be those who not just hear, but are also doers of your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So please turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Um, Douglas Fairbanks was uh, an American actor, director, and producer. Um, He was one of the founders, I think, of the whole idea of Hollywood. Uh, He was the man who um, hosted the very, very first Oscar ceremony, the very first one. Well, the story is told that Fairbanks was uh, driving back to his mansion uh, one day, a mansion at Pickfair. And he saw an Englishman of uh, aristocratic mien and a familiar face uh, trudging along the road in the heat. And he stopped to offer him a lift. And the man accepted. And still unable to remember the man's name, Fairbanks then invited him back for a drink. And uh, in the course of the conversation, attempted to uh, elicit some clues as to the visitor's identity. The visitor seemed to know many of uh, Fairbanks' friends and was evidently well acquainted with uh, the estate. Uh, He had made approving comments of some recent changes that had taken place. Fairbanks uh, eventually managed uh, to whisper to his secretary, who had just come in, Who is that Englishman? I know he's Lord somebody, but I can't remember his name. To which the secretary replied, That, sir is the English butler you fired last month for getting drunk. It can be very embarrassing when you get somebody's identity wrong. I don't know if you've ever had a similar experience of those very awkward moments when you're speaking to somebody and they, they obviously know who you are, but you can't for the life of you remember who they are. And then maybe a day or maybe a few days later, you you're sitting there quite embarrassed as you're trying to desperately remember what you said to them as now you've discovered who they really were. Um, In Luke's gospel, 
as he writes for us this historical account, uh, this historical record of the events surrounding uh, Jesus' life uh, and his, his birth, uh, Luke is very interested in the issue of identity. As he details out those, these events of Jesus' early life and ministry, as he goes around the Galilee area, this question is in his mind about Jesus' identity as he writes. What do these events, the miracles, the teachings, uh, what Jesus taught uh, about, um, what do they tell us about who this person is? Do we believe what Jesus says about himself as he talks about himself in terms of Old Testament prophecy? Can we take seriously the claims that Luke is making in this historical record? The identity of Jesus is uh, an issue of controversy, especially in, in our secular world. Uh, just um, which Jesus is the real Jesus? Is it the revolutionary Jesus? Is it gentle Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, the Jesus of stained glass windows with lambs running about in the background and children in his arms? The left-wing Jesus, the right-wing Jesus, the Jesus who's out to get the establishment, Jesus the great moral teacher, Jesus the healer, Jesus the great human example. Just which Jesus are we to believe in? Which identity is correct? Who are we to trust when it comes to assessing who Jesus really is? And part of the great thing about Luke's gospel is that we have a detailed history of eyewitness accounts, eyewitness testimony about Jesus. Those who were there in the beginning, when, who, who were with Jesus, who walked with him, who talked with him, who saw him, who saw the things he did, who heard the things he said. For the best picture of Jesus we can find, we need to turn to the historical evidence, to the Gospels that allow us to see the real Jesus, Jesus as he actually is. And when we look at the historical records, what do we really find? What do they tell us? You see, it's easy for us to think of Jesus in uh, terms that suit us. To place, him all, uh, to place him and his identity as we would like to have it. Um, but when we actually examine the evidence placed before us, this eyewitness testimony, we begin to really see how amazing, how wonderful the person of Jesus really is. It's easy for us to think in our kind of post-Christian secular world that um, there's a whole lot of opinions out there about who Jesus is and we're somehow unique because we've moved on from Christianity. But actually, Jesus' identity has always been an issue for people. Indeed, in his own time as he ministered in, in first century Palestine, Jesus' identity was in question. After he began his public ministry, remember uh, in chapter 4, he quotes from Isaiah 61, and the people in the synagogue ask themselves, well, who is this guy? And then they try to kill him. Um, as he gathered his disciples around him, they were constantly being amazed by who he was. He calms the storm and they're left amazed, asking, who is this? He raises people from the dead. Who is this? And he feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Who is this person? Is this a man? A miracle worker? Is this? Who is this man? Indeed, Jesus himself was very aware that his, his identity was in question. And in Luke chapter 9, 18, 
we find him addressing the issue with his disciples, this issue of his identity. Who do the crowds say that I am, he asks. Notice all the answers that are given. Some say John the Baptist. But of course, with hindsight, we know that John was dead. But at that time, not everybody might have realized that. Some may even have believed that John had been raised to life again. Others said he's Elijah. Elijah, of course, the great prophet of the Old Testament. Um, Indeed, if we know our, our prophecy of Malachi, he was to appear. Elijah was to appear before the Messiah would come. So is Jesus the promised Elijah, the great spiritual prophet, the one who would turn people back to God? Or perhaps he is one of the Old Testament prophets that has come back to life. A great man, a great leader maybe, uh, someone who speaks from God. Maybe it's Isaiah or a Jeremiah of his generation. You see, even in Jesus' own day, people still considered him to be special in some way. A great man of some type, a man who spoke the truth, a man who was capable of great things, a spiritual guru maybe who could direct your path. A person who was in connection with the spiritual world. Like today, his identity was in confusion. And Jesus himself often did his best to hide his identity from people, telling those whom he healed, do not tell anyone what has been done for you. But then Jesus takes the same question and he turns from popular opinion of himself to what his own disciples think. Verse 20. But what about you? The you is emphatic. It's directed at the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter makes his great confession. You're the Christ of God, the Messiah. For the disciples, this man that they'd been with for nearly three years, this man whom they'd seen do wonderful works, who had taught them about the kingdom of God, was in fact the promised one who was to come. This was the one who would come after John the Baptist. The one who would sit on the throne of King David. The one who would liberate the captives, who would bring vindication for God's people. This was the one who would overthrow God's enemies and reign as king. Here was the one who was anointed by God. The figure, this this mystery figure that the whole nation of Israel, the Jewish people, had been waiting for. Since the return from exile, here was God's king come to reign over God's people and restore the fortunes of the kingdom of Israel. You see, Luke has taken us to this point in his gospel, showing us this, um, the pieces of, he's shown us the pieces of Jesus' ministry. He's led us to this point and he gives us the historical record of this, this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And now we see Jesus has been revealed as that person, that Messiah. He is there, he lives and breathes in first century Palestine. The Messiah has arrived. His identity is exposed and we know who he is. And his disciples are convinced. And we also know from Mark's account of this same event at Caesarea Philippi, that as soon as Peter spoke this, Jesus didn't deny it, but rather confirmed that Peter was correct. 
Now Luke doesn't record that in his account. His account is more of a summary than Mark's. But he does record for us the fact that after the disciples had come to this revelation of of Jesus' identity, he tells them in verse 21, do not tell anybody else. Why? If Jesus is the figure from the the Old Testament talks about, why does he not want anybody to know about it? Why keep it hidden? Why, if if this is such, such an important thing, why not tell anybody? And to answer that, we need to turn from a question of identity to a question of perspective. Um, At university, we had a tutorial group that was um, led by uh, an Asian man. I think he was Indian, but his accent was incredibly, incredibly strong. It was a very, very strong Indian accent, I think. And we went in for a tutorial session and we just had a test. I think it was something to do with um, designing concrete beams or steel structures or something like that. Really fascinating stuff. But we just had a test on, on the mass of all that. And as we were entering the classroom, the tutor was at the door and he was welcoming us in. And he said to my friend Andy, as he walked in, um, he, he asked him a question actually. And he said, you passed it. Referring, of course, to the exam. But with a very strong Asian accent, my friend Andy, to him, it sounded awfully different. Um, Needless to say, Andy was totally taken back uh, by what he heard. So the tutor said it again. And again, Andy picked it up wrong and totally wrong. And at this stage, was pretty much ready for fisticuffs with the guy. Um, Until the tutor said it a third time, and he finally realized what actually he had said, and the situation died down, and we had a really good laugh about it for the whole tutorial. And I'll leave you to your imagination what uh, my friend thought he heard. <clears throat> but it highlights for us um, a point we must take very seriously. What we mean by what we, when we say something and what other people perceive as they hear it can be very different. For Jesus, as his disciples began to realize who he really is, there's a great danger that what the disciples understood as the concept of the Messiah was not actually correct. And much more importantly, what the popular perception among the crowds would have been about the Messiah would certainly not have been correct. It's easy for us to look at this from our perspective and say, well, we know with 2,000 years of hindsight what Messiah means. Anointed king, the suffering servant, the cross and the resurrection but put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. For them, the idea was all tied up with a nationalistic worldview, a view that meant that the Messiah was the liberator of Israel from foreign occupation, a view that saw the kingdom of God with national boundaries and in military terms. They heard words like glory and thought of military conquest. They wanted a literal throne which Jesus would sit on in the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds, no doubt, thought the same. They longed for a deliverance. But deliverance from what? That was the question. So Jesus, knowing full well that his disciples had now seen that he was the Messiah, knew that their understanding was not yet complete. And so he tells them not to tell anyone. Rather, he begins now to explain to them just what the concept of of Messiah really means and what it will mean for him and them. 
he now begins a process of re-education, showing his disciples what this will mean. And so he explains to them about his death and about his resurrection. This is the first account um, that Jesus predicts his death in, in Luke's gospel. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. For him, this role as Messiah was not going to be about great kingly rule and splendor and power as the disciples might have expected. It was more about suffering, the suffering of his death, the giving up of his life as a ransom. The disciples wanted a golden throne, but all Jesus was offering was a cross and an empty tomb at this point. It would take a long time before the disciples would get what Jesus was talking about. Indeed, even as as Jesus was ascending into heaven, you think of the the record of Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, they still had not fully realized what all this would mean. And from this point on in Luke's gospel, the emphasis of Jesus' ministry changes slightly. It changes away from revealing who he is to teaching his disciples what it actually means for him to be the Messiah and very importantly, what it will mean for them to be his followers and what it will mean for them in the future. So from a question of identity to a question of perspective, Jesus now begins to explain the nature of true discipleship. To these men who had followed him, he now leaves them with a question of priorities. All those nationalistic notions of grandeur and splendor will have to be stripped away. The disciples wanted to reign with the new Messiah. They wanted to see the enemies of God overthrown in great victories. They wanted to see the enemies of God turned into their servants. But rather, what Jesus offers them is something a lot different. For just as he would carry his cross and die for the sins of the world, so they will have to carry their cross also. Life will not be about being served as master but rather laying down their lives for others. They wanted all the trappings of glory. Jesus says that the only way to glory is through suffering and sacrifice. They wanted all that life could give them. Jesus says they will have to give up their life for him, and only as they do that will they truly find it. All the possibilities of worldly wealth and pomp of greatness in the eyes of the world, that will have to go. For Jesus, the kingdom was about humility before God and service of other people. The disciples would not be treated like kings. As they follow the Messiah, rather, they would have to give up all that the world would have to to offer them. These priorities would be totally different from the world around them. They would see the kingdom, as Jesus tells them in verse 27, but it would not be what they expected it to be. For the king of God's kingdom will reign via a cross, and then he will enter his glory. And so it is for the Jesus' disciples. The way of the cross will be one of self-sacrifice and suffering of giving up what the world tells us we deserve in order to serve others. And only then will glory come. Suffering then glory. 
that is the way of discipleship. It would be a lesson that the disciples would learn the hard way. And it is a lesson that we must remind ourselves of again and again. To be part of God's kingdom, to follow Jesus, is to be kings and queens without crowns. People whose priorities are towards God and others. And finally, we see a question then of the future. Luke records that eight days after the events uh, described here in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus took his inner circle, the one, the disciples who were closest to him, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain to pray. And as he was in prayer, something out of the ordinary takes place. And Jesus' appearance is changed so that his face and clothes shine with startling light. Before their eyes, they see Jesus, this person whom they had just confessed to be the Messiah of God, the Christ of God. They see him shining like lightning. Here on top of this mountain, they begin again to get a picture of who this Messiah is. With him appears Moses and Elijah, and they speak together of his departure that he, he is to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just what is taking place here? Well, I think the clue lies in the conversation that Jesus is having. Only Luke records the, the actual topic. It's about his departure, or more literally in the Greek, about his exodus. And automatically our mind should be of course, transported back into Israel's past with Moses and the great events of the Exodus thousands of years previous. <clears throat> then God delivered his people from the bondage of Israel, from Egypt into the promised land. It was Moses who had led the people then, and it was Moses who had told the people uh, in Deuteronomy before they entered the promised land, he told them this. In Deuteronomy 18, let me quote it for you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when he said, Let us not hear, when you, when, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see the great fire any more, or we will die. That's, of course, um, referring to Sinai, to the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I have commanded him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. And of course, in the years after, as Israel goes into the promised land and the nation is built up, and then begins to break down, the Lord raises up Elijah. And the people failed to listen to him and the words that he'd spoken. Instead, they continue in the idolatry and sinfulness, and the result is that the covenant that God had made with his people through Moses was broken. And of course, we have that great story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, runs off to Horeb, the mountain of God, and there reports that the covenant is no more. 
Now here is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus stands there with Moses and Elijah as the prophet who speaks the words of God, with whom, to whom the, the people must listen. This is the Messiah figure, the one God has sent. But he isn't just a messenger. He is the message itself. He doesn't just bring the word of God. He is the word of God. And at this moment, the disciples on the mountain get a small glimpse of Jesus as he really is. Of the God-man and the glory that belongs to him. And here he stands, speaking of the future. A future that is to play out in Jerusalem in terms of a new exodus. Again, the disciples' understanding of this Messiah was being stretched. There was going to be a deliverance for God's people, but it wasn't from Roman occupation. It would be a deliverance from the bondage of sin and God's wrath and judgment. Jesus would lead his people out of bondage to sin and into the freedom of the kingdom of God. The Messiah was going to restore God's people and bring them to share in his glory. But for the disciples, they would have to realize that this kingdom would come first through his death and his resurrection. And then only as the message of God's favor would be sent out to the nations would final judgment come on God's enemies. Between the exodus and the promised land, there would be a long period of wilderness wandering, a period of testing and trial, a period where the people of God would be aliens and strangers, as Peter himself would later realize and write in his own epistle. And only after this period would they share in the glory of God. Only then would they enter the rest that God had prepared. But if that wasn't enough to convince the disciples and even us of Jesus' true identity, Peter, James, and John witnessed one further revelation. Not only do they have Moses and Elijah testifying about Christ as they... Uh, but Peter, uh, after he sticks his foot in it, as usual, uh, real, uh, they all hear, rather, God himself testifying to the person of Jesus. The Father testifies about the Son. The cloud comes down around them. Of course, the cloud, think back again, Exodus, the cloud in the Old Testament was symbolic of God's presence being there. And they were very afraid. For the voice from heaven speaks to them and declares in their hearing, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Jesus' identity is revealed not just as Messiah and second Moses, but as the divine Son, the chosen one of God. This is the one to whom the disciples must listen. What they assume about Jesus must be set aside and they must learn from him. He speaks not only from God, but as God. 
He comes as the God-man who would restore the relationship between humanity and God and God and humanity. So Luke records for us that the disciples saw Jesus as the Messiah figure who was promised. Moses and Elijah witnessed to him from beyond death to show us that he is not just a prophet, but the prophet. And the heavenly voice speaks to show that he is the divine son of God. The one to whom we are to listen and obey. The question of Jesus' identity might perplex many today. And even in Jesus' time. But Luke, as he records these eyewitness events for us, leaves us in little doubt as to who Jesus is. This Jesus who walked and breathed all those years ago was no mere revolutionary. No mere liberator or teacher. He was far more than any of these things. He was God. God come down to deliver his people, to bring them out of bondage to bondage to slavery of sin. It was God come to rescue his people, to renew his creation, and to bring life to those who are dead. Here is the one who has the words of eternal life. And if we try and fit him into our own systems or shape him into our own understanding, that won't work. He won't fit. We can't make Jesus into who we desire him to be. He is who he is. And the question we have to ask ourselves is simply that which Jesus asked his disciples all those years ago. Who do you say Jesus is? As you sit here, as you contemplate this, as you think about it, who do you say Jesus is? The answer to that question will shape your perspective, your priorities, and your future for now and for eternity. Each of us must give an answer to that question. There is no neutrality, and each of us will be held to account for the answer which we give. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us of Jesus. We're reminded that as Jesus, after the resurrection, met with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, he spoke to them all that the prophets and the law revealed to them about himself. We thank you that no matter where we turn in your word, that we see him, that we hear his voice. We thank you that we can find out about him. We thank you for Luke's account as he wrote it down carefully all those years ago under the inspiration of your spirit. And here today we may read and know and understand, but more than that, we may come to know, come to believe, come to have faith and trust in the one whom Luke wrote about, Jesus the Messiah, your King, your Son. How we thank you for him. We thank you for his death, We thank you for his exodus, how he has delivered us 
from bondage and made us new and is continuing to shape and fashion us in this world as we live as aliens and strangers awaiting the glory that he has prepared for us. Help us, Lord, in the weakness of our sinfulness to continue in repentance and faith in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.